The response to the COVID-19 crisis has shown local governments saying one thing, the federal government, sometimes an absentee landlord on this issue. And throughout all of it, I, I think we're all getting an appreciation for the leaders we've elected, the leaders they've appointed, uh, the people that are in charge, and, and how important it is to have a decent amount of respect for scientific experts, any experts really, but especially given that this is a, a pandemic, experts that know what the hell they're doing. In that context, I want to welcome someone who's not an expert. Actually, I'm very grateful that he's not a doctor because he wouldn't have the time to talk to me right now. But Ben Korb, who's a good friend of mine and also the public affairs director at the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, and also a host of his own podcast, which I would recommend to you, Pipettes and Politics, very even keeled, very informative COVID coverage and a lot of other topics as well. Ben, first of all, thank you for joining me. Welcome to At the Table. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the, the warm introduction and the plug. I appreciate all of that. Well, it's 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 heartfelt, as you know, because uh, uh, as I emphasized, you're not a doctor, so you have this time. Uh, but Nothing but time. <laughs> Nothing but time at all. Yeah. But you're talking to a lot of medical professionals who, um, frankly, are a little more strapped. And um, before I get into a piece that you wrote most recently that was on CNN.com uh, talking about the intersection of politics and the COVID response, something that's very much on people's minds and your from you know your perches, the professionals, the experts that you talk to on a regular basis, the people who are in your orbit, what is the feeling now as we stand here at the beginning of May 2020? Is it better, worse? Uh, exactly where we thought we would be, you know, how, how are the people that you're working with and representing uh, feeling uh, as, as we stand right now? It's better in this way, which is we know more now than we did a week ago, which is more than we did a month ago, which is more than we did two months before that. So the really unique thing about this particular pandemic is that humans have never interacted with this virus before, ever. I mean, it is a a novel virus. And so everything that we know about it, we are learning as we go. You know, it is it is an analogy that seemingly everybody is using right now, but it's particularly apt in science, which is um, we are building the plane as the plane is flying in the air. And so it's better in that we know, you know, three months more um, about the virus, about how it operates, about what it does, about some things that are effective or not effective than we did at the beginning. Um, but there's still a lot that we don't know. And then there's that whole bucket of we don't know what we don't know um, that makes it difficult as well. So Very Rumsfeldian of you. Oh, I, yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think that gives anybody comfort or warmth. Um, <laughs> but no, I don't think he ever has, actually. But no. That's, that's a separate That's a separate. Neither issue. here nor there. So the title of the piece, and I know that most people, when they write these, these, these opinion pieces, um, they don't choose the title, but it says, this is what happens when coronavirus research funding gets political. And you mentioned building the plane as it's flying. What's very apparent to people who are watching our country's response or their local government's response is that not all the planes are being built the same. Uh, New Zealand's got a great plane. Uh, a few other countries have pretty good. South Korea's got a great plane. The United States 
has a uh, a record breaking plane, uh, but it's it's kind of like the F thirty five. It's very expensive, and we don't know if it works. Uh, and that's I think a real problem when we look at the fact that this is a we're a relatively wealthy country who's got a, a pretty good healthcare sector, and yet we don't seem to be building this plane very well. You talk about why some of the political blocks have gotten in the way. Can you describe, for example, as you do in the piece, how the Trump administration's push to blame China and this kind of jockeying for blame has hurt research efforts as we're trying to understand, as you described, this novel virus? People don't understand. It's not when people say novel, this really is something new. And we're trying to understand it from the ground up, how this this political blame game has really hurt our efforts to do that research. Sure. So, you know, recently what we have learned and what happened is um, the NIH uh, rescinded a a grant to a scientist um, who's stationed in New York City. I mean, that's where he does his research. Um, He's with an organization called the Eco Health Alliance. I don't particularly know that group. I don't represent them. You know, I don't know the scientist. Um, I know his work. Uh, you know, I know he's published more than 20 papers in really highly regarded scientific journals. Um, I know he's a member of the National Academy of Medicine. Um, I know that he's highly regarded. And he had a research grant, and he's been doing research on bat-borne viruses, and specifically on coronaviruses. So this is the thing that this guy knows. He knows about viruses that start in bats and can end up in humans. He knows about coronaviruses, of which there are hundreds of varieties of them. And he knows about pandemic and pandemic spread. Seems like the kind of guy you'd want on board. He is definitely the kind of guy you would want doing research. And he's not the only person doing this research, but he is certainly one of the people that is out there doing it. And he had a grant that started in 2014. And the way scientific grants are funded, um, it's not a bureaucrat that decides yes or no whether you get funding. It's not the director of the NIH that decides yes or no whether you get funding. You apply for a grant and then a panel of essentially your peers, uh, peer reviewers, review your scientific grant and make a determination based on the merit of the science that you're trying to have funded. And people so, have probably heard the uh, the concept of peer review when we're talking about academics. But you mentioned in the piece, and I thought this was some. It's not something I always consider, especially in the context of you know life and death scenarios. These aren't just peers; these are competitors. These are people who are trying to do to to beat you to the top of of whatever mountain you're trying to get to. And so there's an incentive to reward good work, not because. Uh, you know, you're, you're happy that someone else got to the mountain, but because you acknowledge that getting to the top of the mountain is an objective good. That's exactly right. You know, and on top of it, look, it's, you know, I think last fiscal year, I think 22% of the grants that were, you know, that, that people applied for, and it was over 60,000 grants were applied for and only about 22% were awarded. So it's only about an 80%, it's an 80% failure rate that happens. And there's not a difference between, you know, the 22nd grant out of 100 that got funded and the 23rd grant out of 100 that didn't get funded. You know, it's such a granular difference in between those. And so these folks that do the peer review, they take it seriously. They know the science. And if you got funded, it's because you're doing the right thing and it's it's merit based, um, and that's the way that it should be. You know, we don't want someone who doesn't know science determining yes, fund that, no, fund that. Um, 
However, we seem to be tripping into an area where that sort of thing is happening. So you mentioned someone who doesn't necessarily know science. In the piece for CNN.com, you write that the Trump administration has bigfooted this process, or at least there seems to be evidence that the Trump administration has bigfooted this process. That's right. You know, it's hard to, uh, I don't have a, a Sharpie written memo from the president that says this, but I can look at what's happened. And two weeks ago, the president, during one of his coronavirus pressers, talked about his concern, the concern he had heard from people about NIH and how NIH was throwing money away. He was just, NIH is just giving money away and we're going to, we're going to investigate that. And that happened um, around the same time that uh, Senator Rand Paul was highlighting this $3.7 million in NIH dollars that were going to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which I've told people when they make a sci-fi movie of this pandemic, the Wuhan Institute of Virology sounds like the place that the bad guys would be in, just, you know, the <laughs> Institute of Virology. The Wuhan Institute of Virology is there because that's where a lot of virus, I mean, a lot of viruses exist in that region. Exactly. You know, bats that carry coronavirus exist in the Wuhan region of China, and you go where the problem is to do the research. So, so this researcher out of New York is doing research on bat-borne, coronavirus. And he is collaborating with an expert on bat-borne coronavirus in China. Specifically, the institute that you would want to collaborate with because it was founded in the place where these things are most propagated. That's exactly right. And so they're doing this research. And so some of the, some of the, some of the grants from the EcoHealth Alliance um, is subbed out to um, you know, this one researcher at the Wuhan Institute of Research. Why? Because they're the people that you would talk to if you wanted to do it. You know, just like if if you um, if you Jared had the resources and you wanted to learn how to build a commercial jet, you might go to Seattle and you might talk to people um, that work for Boeing because boy, don't they know how to do that? Um, you know, it's that same sort of thing. Um, but because it's China and because this narrative started to take hold, which is China is to blame, um, that research gets questioned. And the problem for that is twofold. And one, and we've talked a little bit about peer review and like the reason why this, why this scientist has this grant is because his peers determined that his research is good enough to fund. And they decided that in 2014 and his grant ran until 2019 and he had to competitively renew, which means kind of reapply to continue his funding and got approved. So he was clearly on a path that was approved again recently, very recently, 2019 recently. But also, he's, in, he's collaborating internationally with an expert in the field. And that is exactly what we, as Americans and as citizens, that's what we would want. I mean, American science is international at its core. We train, the United States trains the global scientific workforce. People come to America to go to American universities to learn about biochemistry and molecular biology and physics and virology and toxicology and all these things because we have the best schools in the world. And most of those people stay here and open up businesses and do the research, you know, here in the U.S. The American scientific enterprise is international and the two, those, these two strong components, an independent, peer-reviewed research enterprise, 
that relies on international collaboration and not caring about where you're from and focusing on working with the smartest and brightest people. Those are exactly the things that you want out of your scientific enterprise without political interference and allowing experts to follow where the expert research takes them. Those two things were thrown out the door when someone made the determination that this funding needs to stop because someone in the Wuhan Institute of Virology was was working with this guy. You know, you mentioned the independence and also the international aspect of this. Both are really under attack. In fact, you you, you focus in the piece that you wrote on the political, and I want to talk about that half of it more because I'm curious to how unusual it is for this to happen where the government's fingerprints or the administration's fingerprints are on uh, a, a, a grant being denied in this particular way. But you, because you mentioned this international virtue and you, the way you describe it as a, as a benefit, a net positive for American science, that's not a universally held position. In fact, recently, Senator Tom Cotton, who you do mention in the piece, was arguing that we shouldn't be teaching Chinese students STEM education in the United States. They should learn Shakespeare and other American stuff, uh, seemingly <laughs> I mean, without Shakespeare, irony. The, he the, was a making proud the, American, William Shakespeare was. That's the thing, that it just doesn't make sense. I, I don't understand... Um, why these things can bleed in and why we can become so blind to and kind of perverse a normally well-functioning process. And look, peer review is not perfect. And there are people who will say, you know, someone got a grant that shouldn't have gotten a grant or boy, that that person doesn't know what they're talking about. I mean, you know, the, the process isn't perfect, but it's the best one we've got. It's the best one that, you know, humankind has developed for funding research and this was stuff that was getting funded, and this was research that was happening. You know, it is not often that the NIH repeals a funding decision in this way. You know, it, it can happen. And I said in the piece, too, if, if it turns out that there was misconduct going on, you know, scientific misconduct, uh, misrepresentation of data facts, um, if the researcher was being fraudulent with the taxpayer dollars, if he was sexually harassing people in his laboratory, I mean, those are all valid reasons to say no. Um, you don't get the taxpayer dollars to continue doing your research anymore. And no one would argue that. No one would say, you know, yeah, keep funding someone who is an abuser or, right. um, you know, is a fraud. Um, but you're saying, to, to, my, to the question I was alluding yeah. to earlier, it is unusual for the government's fingerprints to be on a, the, this process in the way that you've described. It is unusual. And my concern is, is if, is this the first time that this happens? So what happens, you know, what happens in Trump's second term when he decides, you know, any research that involves stem cells must be bad and therefore pull the grant, you know, and, and, and stop funding in those areas or, or just any other thing. I mean, there were there were attempts to make law in that to that effect. I think during during the Bush administration, you might you might have the timeline on that better than I would. But I mean, there's certainly been a lot of. Uh, those avenues, I think, I think the law during the Bush administration was closing new paths and only using existing Correct. lines yeah, of stem cells. Yeah, Wasn't that right. the? That's right. And and the so these are the, you you describe it as a new path, but it's actually a path that we've been we've been traveling for some time. Right. You know the difference is is you know the Bush administration. You know the, 
they didn't allow, you know, new lines of stem cells to be for you to do your research with, but they did allow you to do your research with the existing lines, kind of like this, this grandfathered in process. The president has signaled, including in the White House briefing, uh, as you and I talk today, which is the first briefing in over 400 days, uh, that immigration priorities, you know, we were talking about Senator Cotton the other, a few minutes ago, and other political goals will be seen as negotiating chits for COVID relief. Now, some of this is economic relief, and I don't want to uh, ask you about things that are not in your wheelhouse of, of, you know, medical priorities. But some of this will be things that directly keep the virus contained or don't. The president has signaled exactly what you said a moment ago is a concern. And he's saying that these are negotiating uh, tools that he is willing to uh, to uh, to use and is enthusiastic about using. I'm guessing you don't think that's good for the containment of this virus or any other future medical emergency. Uh, no, I don't think how we study this virus and how we explore the different um, therapies that might work or the development of a vaccine should be encumbered in any way based on politics. Um, the virus doesn't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or who you voted for in the last election. Um, it doesn't care if your state is a sanctuary state or not. Um, the virus is looking for a cell to enter, to replicate itself, to create more versions of itself and for that to continue into perpetuity. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's troubling if, if there are going to be these new hurdles that people have to cross in order to prove their worth, um, instead we should allow good science to follow and track and identify pathways. And back to you know this, you know this researcher, you know who had his grant pulled because he worked with, with China, you know, or, or with a Chinese researcher. Um, some of the work that he's done in coronaviruses has helped to understand kind of the underlying mechanism of that virus, which the next researcher picked up to realize, you know, there's this drug um, remdesivir that, you know, I wonder if that'll have an impact on that particular part of this virus. And that led to someone saying, well, let's try giving it to a patient and let's do a clinical trial. I mean, all of these things are all building blocks that build off of each other. And one of those foundational blocks is some of the discovery that, you know, that this researcher and other researchers have found. And so, you know, what happens, what happens if you pull that block out, the under, you know, that the understanding of that particular function of the virus? Well, now we don't have that, you know, that therapy doesn't exist. Well, the image I have in my head is a, of, of a bad game of Jenga right now. So it's... Absolutely. The, the other question I have for you, and this is, um, again, kind of, I would imagine on the periphery of what you as an advocate and as someone who works with a fastidiously nonpartisan organization, it might be a difficult question, but the Trump administration has buffeted questions about why it is so bad on testing and tracing where other organizations, other states, other countries have done a better job. And I wonder about why this is, is why this is a uniquely American problem. And from your perch, again, at the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, is there a consensus when you're talking to colleagues about why this is bad, and does it have to do with politics? Here's how I'll answer that question. If I were president right now, and thankfully for me and for everybody, I'm not, 
But if I were president right now, I would look to Tony Fauci. I would look to Dr. Burks. I would look to the director of the CDC, the director of the FDA, the director of the NIH, and I would say, whatever you want, whatever you need is what you shall have because I'm not a scientist and because I am the president and got elected, that doesn't make me an expert on this. You are. You have a lifetime of service to this country and you have a lifetime of scientific knowledge. Whatever you need, we're all behind you. Let's go. And that's how I would handle it. It's clear that that's not what's happening right now. And I can say that maybe if you can't, but, um, but I'm, I'm very comfortable saying it. The, the last question I have for you, Ben, and this is, is, is not personal is the wrong word, but I, I know that you used to be an EMT. Uh, so previous to your work as a public affairs director and before you started doing uh, podcasting on the side, let me tell you, a very lucrative uh, <laughs> position to be of, in for sure. sure. Um, the, uh, but, you, but you worked as an EMT, and I imagine you have a lot of, first of all, I didn't know, I haven't known this fact for very long so I I desperately want to when all this is over in the aftertimes uh grab a drink with you and talk about that because I'm sure there are some really good stories but also I imagine you have a perspective that doesn't go away of what it's like to be on the front lines of anything and maybe you have people who are still in that who are telling you what it's like to be there right now as a first responder what do you remember from that role and how can, have you had moments where you've been like waking up in the middle of the night thinking, Oh God, what if I were still an EMT right now? Like that would be the, would that be better or worse for you? I guess, uh, for your sanity. Right. Um, it would be way worse for my sanity and for my health and for my well being, <laughs> um, and for my back and for my stress levels. Um, <laughs> I remember, so one thing, interestingly, and I'll take the second to plug it, but in one of my uh, early COVID-19 special edition podcasts that I did for Pipettes and Politics on SoundCloud and YouTube, um, was with Bill Ackley, who is a mentor of mine from when I was an EMT and is currently the, um, I'm not remembering, the director of preparedness for Southwestern Connecticut Regional EMS. Um but I wanted to have that kind of the exact conversation that you're talking about. I remember when I was an EMT, when you took your test to get certified, you would have to, you'd have, you take a written test, but you'd also have to go through practical examinations where you would have to come across a scene and you would have to treat a patient who was, you know, pretending or had some kind of, uh, you know, makeup to make it look like an injury and you would have to treat it. You failed the station. If the very first thing that you said was, was not, um, is the scene safe? and I'm wearing my personal protective gear. You failed that station. So you could do everything exactly perfectly right if you didn't say, I'm checking to see if the scene's safe and I am wearing the appropriate protective gear. I would put that up again and think, and that's what I think about when I think of um, an EMT in New York City or in Detroit or in any part of the country right now who gets a call because someone fell down and they don't know. And they don't know if the person is COVID positive or negative, or if the people around are, or if the house that they go into is, or whatever that is. They don't know what they're going into. They don't know. Um, on top of it, they go through an entire shift of dealing with people who are sick and who are not in their best condition and not in the best place, and they're exposed to all sorts of things, and then they have to come home. I mean, I think about 
the frontliners who have families at home. And the very last thing that they want to do is to expose a family member to something that they picked up and, you know, it, and have it continue on from there. So I feel so badly for those people who can't do their jobs or they have to do their jobs, but they have to do it in this really weird and awkward way. And I also remember part of the thing that I always remembered was, you know, part of my job when I would show up on scene was certainly to treat the patient, but it was also to be human and to treat the, you know, if there was family there, you know, it's a, it's a holistic approach to trying to take care of somebody. And I, you know, I've, I've seen doctors on the news talking about this, like how do you have a human experience when you are in be, you know, behind a gown and a mask and a shield and all of those sorts of things. And the person that you're talking to is having perhaps the worst day of their life. And it's like they're speaking to a, you know, a robot or an alien or a machine. Um, it's a challenge. And I feel for those people. And um, I, um, my heart goes out to them and their families. And um, I hope that they're all being safe. And I wish that our country would take better care of them um, at this time and at all times. Um, and if I were being completely honest, I'm at this moment with, you know, a with my family, um, I'm I'm glad it's them and not me that's out there having to do that because it's hard hard work. And also, people don't realize that this is not a well paid position. I mean, a lot of the people who are doing this oh, not are, at all. No, yeah, no, it is not a lucrative job that you're doing if you're in this position. Yeah. Well, luckily, um, the vice president was brave enough to go to the Mayo Clinic and look people in the eye. So I think uh, that was probably a great amount of comfort for them to be able to see the bottom half of his face. And, well, he did say that you can't look somebody in the eye while you're wearing a mask, which is, you know, not true. But, um, you know, the, the, see, there, there's your bias, Ben, because it depends on the mask. You're right. uh, you know, some masks cover your eye holes and that's just, <laughs> that's just a fact. And I don't know why you can't accept that. Uh, before I get him in too much trouble, today I just want to was the last again. day of my job. Yes. <laughs> thank Ben Corb is the public affairs, was the public affairs director, no, currently <laughs> still is the public affairs director, American Society, Biochemistry, Molecular Biology. He is a host of a, a conversation. I will make sure he, he uh, sheepishly plugged it. I will make sure it's linked in this discussion, Pipettes and Politics. Again, if you are science or science adjacent and you want to have a better understanding, you will find it there. Uh, I find it to be an excellent conversation and one that I have certainly uh, spent some some of my precious ear time on. Uh, ben, thank you again for joining me at the table and for being someone who uh, put out this piece and talking about something that's very important, which is the slippery slope that we find ourselves on when political uh, ideology gets in the way of, of good scientific research. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Jared.